This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. I know that many of you have come today because of the title of our talk, <laughs> expecting to hear some advice on how to meet people of the opposite gender. And I, I really apologize. You know, maybe in a different universe that would be an appropriate talk, but not today, as you can see from the photographs. Um, this is a more serious topic to be brought to us by John Chiochatti. Some of you will recall he uh, has already contributed to our series this academic year. <clears throat> uh, I suppose I should make the announcement about turning off your cell phone. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother John. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, it's a reminder of how important you are. <laughs> Okay, John Chodachati is the current Schoenstein Fellow here at uh, at Stanford. Can I announce where you're going to be next year? Sure. Or, yeah. Uh, and he was a successful competitor for a national fellowship at the Hoover Institution right next door, so he will be a neighbor during the coming academic year, I'm delighted to say. Um, I won't go through the, the CV, his JD from Harvard Law, PhD from Oxford, it's all quite impressive, but much more impressive is, uh, I think as you will agree with me after you've heard the talk, is the sort of acute, sharp, analytic bent that I think his scholarship uh, displays. I must say it's been a tremendous pleasure having John as a colleague this past academic year uh, for that reason. Um, and also he's a nice guy. Uh, but I look forward also to sharing further conversations with him, and who knows, he may give us uh, a follow-up talk in the coming academic year, perhaps called Dating and Married. Who knows? <laughs> okay, John Chodachati. Thanks very much, John. Thanks so much. Uh, as Don mentioned, uh, I chose a catchy title in the hopes that the student body would, would see it and, and come for the wrong reasons. But actually, it's a, actually it's a, a, a quite a serious topic. I think that, that Southeast Asian responses to the rise of China are interesting for a few reasons. Of course, they're interested. They're of interest to anybody who's a specialist on Southeast Asia, because uh, then and now, in the past and in the present, great power politics have always played such a defining, contributing role to the Southeast Asian security landscape and Southeast Asian affairs more broadly. A second reason why I think it's interesting uh, for us as scholars is that it provides an opportunity to look at how what we might call secondary states or small states and middle powers, how they respond to a rising potential hegemon in their midst or a leading power in their midst. Uh, and in Southeast Asia, we have countries of tremendously differing cultural orientations, uh, geography, wealth, size, military might, etc. And so it provides that analytic opportunity. And then thirdly, it's of interest because in theory, at least, Southeast Asia ought to give us some kind of indication about how countries more broadly are going to respond to China as China's reach extends into different areas of the international system as it becomes more powerful. And so what I'm going to do is I first want to start by I first want to start by by narrowing the, the focus of discussion and saying that this is uh, this talk's going to be focused on security. Now, of course, security is inseparable at some level from economics and from other aspects of regional affairs, uh, but for, for the purpose of, of keeping this analytically focused, as, as Don uh, kindly foreshadowed, I want to focus in particular on the security dimension. And so 
as China gets more powerful, and you've got all of these ASEAN countries, I could have added East Timor and others, uh, as they come to terms with this rising power in their midst, they've got a few different options. Uh, one is, of course, to uh, accommodate China's rise, and essentially, as I say, roll out the red carpet. But this can range from, from just political deference at some level to out-and-out uh, alliance uh, along the lines at the ex in the extreme case of something like the Warsaw Pact. Uh, of course, the second option is to resist it. And you can resist a rising power in a variety of ways. One is, of course, self-help remedies. You can arm yourself to the hilt, as I say, uh, in the hopes that your own independent power capabilities will, will deter the rising power from trying to exercise unwanted leverage against you. A second, when I say band together, what I mean is these these small states and middle powers can aggregate with one another and try to create something of an alternative block. Uh, people often ask, is ASEAN, people who aren't familiar with the region often ask, is ASEAN some kind of military alliance? Well, it's not. Um, but in theory, that's one of the options available to countries in this kind of a security predicament. You want to match up to a much larger power, band together. And the third is, of course, to find a, a friendly great power ally. That's been the norm in the region historically, uh, kind of great power balancing and the countries in the region trying to manage their relations with one or more great powers by finding others to establish some kind of a balance of influence in the region. This is the closest to the what I would call the mainstream expectation of international relations theory. If you face a country that is rising in power and in some ways is becoming either an actual or a potential menace, you balance against it by finding somebody friendly to get on your side. And the third, and this is what I'm going to argue today has actually happened in practice, is you try to find something in between. This is why I use this, this kind of joke moniker of dating but not married. Uh, this, is, this is kind of the marriage uh, option, which is to say uh, China's the wave of the future. We in Southeast Asia have to come to terms with that reality. And whether you call it some sort of unity or suzerain relationship or otherwise, uh, we reach out uh, very eagerly to embrace the country that is going to be tomorrow's leader in the region. Uh, outright rejection is this, this option. And somewhere in between, you've got this kind of, of dating arrangement, if you will, where the countries in the region are trying to size up what type of power China's going to be. Uh, they're uncertain about its future orientation. Um, they're also unwilling to take the risk of, of antagonizing it. And so what they do is they try to, what I call hedging, they try to form limited kind of uh, fallback security options uh, while at the same time trying to engage China through largely non-military channels to moderate its, its uh, behavior and hopefully to shape its, its uh, intentions uh, for the future in a way that's advantageous to regional interests. So I want to start by, by running through very quickly kind of a historical progression, and then I'll break down what I see as the kind of power political and the more liberal aspects of these strategies, so hedging on the one side uh, and, and engagement on the other. In the Cold War era, these little triangles uh, represent kind of the various states that are now members of, of ASEAN. In the Cold War era, uh, I call it a super war standoff. Of course, it was more complicated than that because China and India and Japan and others played roles. But in a strict military sense, in terms of power projection capabilities, uh, 
the, the region was divided in, in a way that kind of traditional international relations theory uh, uh, often presents the world uh, as relatively black and white phenomena. You had three countries during the 1980s in Indochina that were close, closely allied and directly or indirectly with the Soviet Union and a massive Soviet base at Cameron Bay, which was the largest installation of Soviet uh, arms outside of the Warsaw Pact countries. And in the maritime region, you had countries that to varying degrees were oriented toward the United States, not all of them military allies, but politically and otherwise, in terms of their trading relationships, were more oriented toward the U.S. and its major trading partners. And the United States, of course, had the huge uh, naval and air bases in the Philippines at Subic Bay and Clark Airfield which, like Cameron Bay, were the largest U.S. installations outside of what one might call its core areas of, of operation. And so, and Burma here, this is important actually, Burma I, I, I made gray because Burma was probably the most genuinely non-aligned country in some respects in the region. It was not, it didn't have close security relations with either of the, of the great powers. And I'll talk more about the variation, especially in the maritime region later. So, at the start of the post-Cold War era, the situation changed dramatically. And I think that for those of us who, who live so far away, it's, 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 it might be difficult to appreciate quite uh, how s significant the strategic shift was in the region as the Third Indochina War drew to conclusion. Because by 1992, the Soviets, now Russians, had, had more or less committed to withdrawing from Cameron Bay. They still had some court visits, but it was no longer a significant expression of Russia's will to project power and the influence. Mount uh, Pinatubo uh, erupted in the Philippines, wiping out the Clark Airfield. Soon the U.S. Air Force was hankering to leave. When the base negotiations got testy with the Philippines in 1990 and 91, the U.S. ultimately decided we're not willing to pay the price that the Filipinos are demanding. And so in 1992, the U.S. troops pulled out of their long-standing hub in Subic Bay. With the Soviets gone, these three Indo-Chinese countries had to come to terms with the reality that they've been breathing fire at China for 15 years during the context of the Sino-Soviet split, and, and now they didn't have any kind of big brother to protect them. And so they very quickly kind of neutralized. Uh, Vietnam tried to open to China and the United States while keeping its head down so that it wouldn't have a repeat of the 1979 conflict with China. The same thing more or less with Laos. Cambodia is more complicated because, of course, of the UN administration effectively neutralized it. Uh, but even after the elections in 1993, Cambodia tried to orient itself uh, more neutrally among the superpowers, at least initially. I'll talk about that later. At the same time, of course, in Burma, now Myanmar, uh, the generals had taken over. Uh, the 888 uh, uprisings had occurred. The elections of 1990 had been squashed, and a country that had, was increasingly ostracized looked around for neighbors who could help meet its balance of payments and support its unpopular regime. And lo and behold, China, which had just undergone the similar kind of ostracism for Tiananmen Square, was a very willing and eager partner. And so I, I, I color this black. Of course, it's an exaggeration. They weren't really a full-scale ally of China, but much, much closer than they had been before. In the maritime region, of course, there were different shades of, of white or off-white or gray here as well, still generally an orientation toward the West. 
but without that big rock of stability that they perceived Subic Bay to offer, uh, because the United States was no longer as credibly committed to the region, uh, with the Soviet specter gone, uh, and and with China still possessing limited capabilities, a lot of countries in the region feared that the U.S. Uh, didn't, wasn't credibly committed to the defense of Southeast Asian interests. So why is the region so important? Uh, and, and uh, or why, why are these uh, bases that were once at Cameron Bay and at Subic Bay so important? And how does this changing strategic landscape manifest itself in kind of regional security? Well, as most or all of you probably know, the Straits of Malacca here are the busiest waterway in the world. They carry not just oil, but all kinds of trading and merchandise from the Middle East and Europe and also from the subcontinent out to these, these uh, busy ports in, in East Asia and along the Pacific Rim. And there are a couple of these, of these critical areas, all of which at one way, in one way or the other became uh, concerns <coughs> of governments in the region after the Cold War that could be either flashpoints or that could be kind of fulcrums for exercising influence over the, uh, the waterways in the region. One were the Andaman Islands and, and in general kind of uh, uh, Myanmar's island chains that are off of the Eastern Indian Ocean. Of course, the Straits of Malacca themselves that, that draw down to, to the Malaysian Peninsula and Singapore. The Spratly Islands, you could also add the uh, Paracels and some others in that region. And of course, the Taiwan Straits. These three here, Spratly Islands, Andaman Islands, Straits of Malacca, that wedge kind of defines the maritime security environment in Southeast Asia. Most of the countries in the region derive a tremendous amount of their foreign exchange and their national wealth, and above all, their economic growth from trade, and especially during the 1980s, during the kind of Tiger era, most of this was export and development. Uh, to the extent that it wasn't, a lot of it was natural resources uh, and, and natural gas, not least of which is located along these coasts here at the basin of the South China, at the base of the South China Sea and along the Eastern Indian Ocean. And so, as the post-Cold War starts, I'm sorry, the wrong way. as the post-Cold War starts, the fear of China, and, and mind you, not all governments perceive China similarly. I'm going to simplify throughout the talk. Uh, many see China as more threatening than others, uh, and China is not just a threat, it's also a tremendous economic opportunity. But for those people whose job it is in Southeast Asia to protect national security in the traditional sense, in other words, kind of externally oriented national security, the fear of a rising China is that it would, is that it would progress through something of what they call the two pincer advance, and these two red arrows obviously define the pincers. Uh, in 1992, the Chinese unilaterally declared sovereignty over some of the Spratly Islands. ASEAN responded by issuing its first ever public call for the United States to carry on with a formidable military presence in the region. At the same time, as I mentioned, China's <coughs> relationship with Myanmar strengthened considerably after the, the uh, junta solidified its control. And so the fear was, if you were one of these countries in the middle, all of whom, by the way, I, I should step back for a second. All of these countries, at one time or the other during the Cold War, had been at loggerheads with China and had seen China as a threat uh, to some extent. Now, in, in general, the nature of the threat was entirely different than what they faced in the post-Cold War era. The nature of the threat was uh, subversive. It was funding 
largely ethnic Chinese minority groups who were seen as being uh, uh, potential fifth columns for communist advance in the region. And so whether it's the Communist Party of, of Indonesia or whether it's up here right on China's border and the communist, Burmese Communist Party, different threat but still lingering suspicions uh, because the people who were in power in the early post-Cold War period had, had cut their teeth as professionals during an era in which in most capitals uh, uh, China was, was seen with, with some suspicion. And so the fear is China comes through Myanmar and the Eastern Indian Ocean here, kind of starts to carve out a sphere of influence in the South China Sea here, and is ultimately able, not necessarily to attack or conquer uh, territory, but to dictate terms because of its leverage over these key waterways and over the commerce and the resources uh, that are connected to uh, the maritime sea lanes. So that brings us to the question of, you know, when I look at this, of course, I'm only, I'm only focused on China. There are other countries, Japan, Australia, United States, India, the UK, who are involved. How, how powerful is China in, in, uh, in terms of its raw capabilities? This, this graph shows uh, the black bar is, is GDP adjusted for purchasing power parity, and the white bar is, is aggregate military spending, which is a nominal figure. And so you can think about adjusting that a little bit. Uh, in terms of what you can buy for your money as well. And what this graph shows, uh, and it's kind of a caveat graph, is that although we're talking about how Southeast Asian countries react to this potential hegemon in their midst, in, in, in raw power terms, China is growing rapidly, very significant, especially when you put it in contrast to some of the other major, major regional powers in ASEAN as a whole, but certainly nothing beginning to approach the United States, especially when you, when you compare them in terms of their military spending. And so I, I included this slide as a kind of caveat uh, because sometimes the discourse of China starts to project 20 or 30 years into the future and talk about China as if it's already arrived, not only as an economic force and as a political actor, but as a military heavyweight. It's not yet. And this is not just a kind of quantitative advantage. There's a qualitative uh, uh, decisive qualitative edge, especially in air and in naval power that countries like the U.S. and, and Japan and Australia still have vis-a-vis uh, -vis China in most respects. So as China comes into the region, and I mentioned those concerns about China extending its influence kind of downward through these two pincers, what are the, what are the options that Southeast Asian states have? I should have I should have included uh, a slide before alignment options because, as I mentioned, there are the options of self-help, in other words, building up your own arms, and there's also the option of independent aggregation or, or collecting as ASEAN your military resources and trying to stare down the PRC without a great power front behind you. In fact, during the 1990s, there was something of a mini arms race in ASEAN. There were a number of articles uh, written about this at the time because countries like Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, even Indonesia were starting to move into higher tech, more expensive weapon systems, usually but not always with the U.S. as a provider. And around 95, 96, 97, it was thought that what we were off to was a genuine arms race in which countries were going for the self-help option, not exclusively, but in large part. Since then, since the Asian financial crisis, 
that trend has leveled off considerably. There are still countries in the region, especially the Singaporeans and to a lesser extent the Thais, who have bought fancy weapon systems like F-16 fighters, and Singapore is involved in the development of the Joint Strike Fighter. But, but by and large, uh, countries in the region, talk to officials in the region, uh, the long-term concept of trying to use self-help remedies to exert influence vis-a-vis -vis China in the security sphere is not seen as a winner. Uh, in, the, in the immediate, I'll go back for a second, in the immediate term, in the short term, countries like Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia who are far from China's power projection orbit can rely on their existing uh, naval and air resources. But everyone plans, when you're planning military contracts, of course, it takes years to design, years to pay for it, years to learn how to, to service it. They're all, they're all uh, operating on, on the notion that in 15 or 20 years, the self-help option is certainly not the only thing that they can rely on. Uh, internal, internal tensions within ASEAN, of course, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos were at war with ASEAN in, in, in reality against Thailand and indirectly against, against the other maritime uh, ASEAN countries during the 1980s. Uh, Burma, of course, continues to be an outcast now. A lot of territorial conflicts, mutual suspicions, and so the independent aggregation option isn't terribly attractive either. That gets us to the great power picture. Uh, to a large extent, countries in the region who are thinking about China as a potential security threat are continue to rely on the option of a friendly great power being involved in the region to serve a kind of stabilizing force. And here's where we get into the more kind of analytic part of the presentation. Uh, at one extreme, the IR literature would say you can bandwagon. This is, this is defined differently by different authors. Some people say bandwagoning means that you simply uh, ally with the most powerful actor in the international system. Others say you, you, you are appeasing a threat. Some say bandwagoning has to do with riding a wave in the future. I'm not going to try to adjudicate that, that terminological dispute here. For the purposes of this presentation, I'm treating bandwagoning as kind of riding China's wave upward as it increases in, in influence. And, and so one option is, of course, to say we're going to side with you closely and reap the spoils of your, your future successes. Second option is you can, what I say, hedge with China. In other words, form some kind of a security relationship with China, but an arm's length one. Uh, and try to preserve some kind of flexibility uh, so that, so that you're, you're not unduly antagonizing, say, the United States or its allies, uh, but nor are you uh, succumbing entirely to kind of uh, China's dictates. Third, of course, strict neutrality. The fourth would be to hedge against China, in other words, kind of a limited re uh, security relationship with some kind of a rival power, of which, obviously, here's the stars and stripes. The US is the logical uh, uh, power for most Southeast Asian countries who are considering that option. And then balancing, which is kind of the traditional model of realpolitik, where you form a rock-hard, rock-ribbed alliance with the United States in a kind of form of neo-containment against the PRC. So the ideal type options are one, two, and three. When you read IR literature, it's almost all about balancing bandwagoning or staying in the middle. Of course, any policymaker knows that in the real world, there are all kinds of shades of gray. And my argument is that, that, that really almost without exception, Southeast Asian countries are falling into these spaces. And they're trying to head with or against the PRC. 
in order to preserve sufficient security, uh, but to keep their options open. So what I have now on the board is one model. There's, there are a number of people who have written on this topic. Robert Ross at Boston College has written what he terms a neorealist approach to Southeast Asian security. And so he looks at this and says, well, among those three ideal type <coughs> options, bandwagoning, neutrality, and balancing, where are Southeast Asian countries likely to fall? His argument is that when countries, when small states and middle powers have an option to, to balance, they will. And so the five countries here, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Brunei, and the Philippines, who are far enough away from China's uh, sphere of military influence, will form balancing arrangements. The countries on the mainland, he argues, as China becomes more powerful, will kind of fall into line. Uh, they'll bandwagon simply because they don't have another option. And as a result, you'll have what he calls, he, this is important, he says this is a benign outcome, a geography of the peace, right? So that you have a maritime mainland sphere of influence, and you have a kind of traditional balance of power arrangement between China, a Chinese-led and a US-led order. Now, in reality, what's happened looks quite different. Um, if we take a snapshot today, my argument would be that what you have is, is Myanmar is certainly the closest, where obviously darker is referring to Chinese uh, uh, allies and, and lighter to US. Myanmar is the closest to China, but in significant part that has to do with the fact that they're being ostracized by the West. In fact, in the 1990s, when the, when the junta became closer to China and started building installations along the coastline for intelligence facilities and allowing the door to trade to come in, especially into the area around Mandalay, they became concerned that they were too much of a Chinese stooge and that they were both alienating their other neighbors, like India and like Thailand, uh, but also that they were losing their own power of decision. And so they've tried to pull back a little bit. And they are certainly pro-PRC in their, in their security orientation but they have fallen into a, uh, an arrangement now that is, I would call it a, a kind of a hedging with China arrangement. At most, you would say that it barely crosses the line of being a kind of de facto Chinese ally. In the Indo-Chinese states, you have Vietnam trying uh, desperately hard to avoid being seen by either China or by the United States as an ally of the other. The Vietnamese uh, leadership by and large feels that the United States is one type of threat and China is another. China is the threat that invaded us in 1979 and that's the ever-present kind of giant on our doorstep. The United States is the one who, who they fear for peaceful evolution and for funding different kind of minority hill tribes uh, along the border near Laos and Cambodia. Uh, and ultimately, once the U.S. left Saigon, they reasoned, uh, we can no longer seriously count on American defense of our interests on mainland Southeast Asia. So we don't want to be too close to China um, because we're afraid of being bullied around by a kind of historical nemesis. We don't want to be too close to the United States uh, because we don't ultimately think that we can count on them. They'll leave us in the lurch. And so, so Vietnam is a more non-aligned posture. Thailand, a very different kind of, of uh, posture, which is to actively engage both through the security fear. And this is partly a product of Thai strategic culture, if you will, this, this culture of kind of bending with the wind and accommodating powerful actors instead of resisting them. But it also has historical antecedents, of course, because 
Thailand found that after 1975, when the U.S. left, that it needed to draw China in as a kind of uh, protector against potential Vietnamese expansion on mainland Southeast Asia. And the Thais have maintained those relationships, like Vietnam, trying to equilibrate in some sense um, uh, between China and the United States. Laos and Cambodia aren't given a lot of opportunity to, to, to draw very close to the United States or its allies. Um, but nor have they, have they rushed uh, in the direction of strong alliances with uh, China. Um, in economic terms and in political terms, all of the countries I mentioned have, have booming relations with China. But in security terms, which is the focus of this talk, Cambodia started in 95, 96, um, buying some defense supplies from the Chinese, looked like they were headed in the direction of becoming a Myanmar kind of relationship, but they pulled back. And in part, that's because 60% of their exports still go to the U.S. In part, that's because much of the balance goes to Thailand and Vietnam and the other ASEAN countries, who are also heavy investors. Uh, the Cambodians don't want to be uh, Myanmar. Uh, they don't want to be uh, uh, ostracized, nor do they want to be a country where, where China calls a lot of the security shots as well as the economic and political ones. Uh, Laos, kind of somewhere in between uh, Vietnam and Cambodia, a little bit less less willingness than Vietnam to stand up to China in, uh, in security terms, and so they've had a lot more kind of defense visits and they've had uh, different joint training exercises and such, uh, but ultimately they've tried to maintain a relatively neutral posture. In the, main, in the maritime sub-region, different kind of shades of light gray uh, with Singapore and the Philippines the most willing to stand up and say, we believe in a strong U.S. presence in the region. In the aftermath of the closure of Subic Bay, the Philippines uh, itself expected that the U.S. would just continue on as, as a robust informal security partner, making all kinds of, of port visits, etc. Other ASEAN countries weren't so sure. They made facilities available and they increased the access that they granted to the U.S. for different kinds of training, R&R facilities, uh, port visits, and the like. Uh, above all, the Singaporeans, who had been able to kind of get away with, with, uh, with the Philippines bearing the potential brunt of identification with the U.S. during the Cold War, stepped forward and, and, and showed its stripes and said, uh, often explicitly, we believe the U.S., Lee Kuan Yew and others, we believe that the U.S. is critical to the balance of power in Southeast Asia. Uh, Singapore built the Chinese naval base extension in 1998 to accommodate aircraft, cowers, uh, aircraft carriers, explicitly saying this is a way to keep the U.S. involved in the region. Other countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, quiet cooperation, kind of. Uh, they obviously, especially post 9-11, have domestic reasons to be wary of, of the perception that they're, that they're America's lackeys. Uh, but nevertheless, quietly, they continue to send people to the International Military Education Training Program here, continue to have joint training and exercises, continue to have a considerable number of port visits. Malaysia is probably the best case in point where uh, uh, the Malaysians outwardly, especially in the Mahathir, sound like they're, they're uh, America's adversary. In fact, quietly, they've cooperated since the mid-1980s and host dozens and dozens of U.S. port visits every year. They also have an indirect tie to the U.S., as do Singapore and Brunei, through their relationships with Australia and the United Kingdom. So, I sh so looking at this, I, I've 
I've said that the countries in the region, yes, there's the neorealist model is not entirely, should, we shouldn't entirely dispose of it. There is a little bit of a darker shade of gray uh, in this part of the map than there is in that part of the map. And so I don't want to try to make a straw man out of the neorealist argument. There is something to be said for the fact that the maritime subregion continues to be a relative sphere of greater U.S. security influence <coughs> and the mainland sphere of Chinese influence. That said, it's still mostly a story about gray. And I want to talk very briefly about why these countries uh, hedge. And this is the topic of a manuscript I just wrote, and people have questions about it. I can go into a lot more detail about the, the theory. But essentially, for countries in, in Southeast Asia particularly, whether it's meeting a rising China or basically in any kind of strategic environment. Uh, alignment politics and making those decisions is a question of trying to optimize the risks and rewards. There are, there are, there are clearly rewards to, to forming countervailing alignments uh, with the U.S. or, for that matter, to forming alignments with a rising China. You get arms, you get money, sometimes you get security guarantees of varying credibility, and you get all kinds of spillover benefits ranging from possible influence on great powers policies uh, to sometimes the prestige factor, maybe small European, Eastern European countries are a good example of this, who want to join NATO not just for its material benefits, but also because of a membership in a kind of club. Um, on the other hand, alignment with a great power presents very, very serious risks, especially when you're a small country or a middle power who can easily be knocked out. The most obvious of them is domination. And this is why I say that, that even the countries on, on China's periphery are not eager to sign up to this kind of neorealist bandwagoning strategies, uh, nor are the countries that are more distant than the maritime, maritime subregion eager to uh, tie their futures inextricably to the United States. Uh, the flip side of domination, or maybe the, the corollary to domination, is dependency. Most countries in, the, in Southeast Asia during the 1970s and 80s built their security policy. I've been talking mostly about external security policy, but for most countries in the region, security has been primarily an internal phenomenon. It's been the project of trying to manage vociferous tendencies and centrifugal forces in complex, multi-ethnic, modern states. And, and resilience, which is the Indonesian term that other ASEANs have embraced, has been kind of the buzzword for this comprehensive security in Southeast Asia. When you ally with a great power, you may in fact get help. For example, if you're the Philippines afraid of China's move into the South China Sea, you may get plenty of deterrent value and support vis-a-vis -vis China by having the US there. But in the process, that alliance can serve as a crutch that retards some of your independent uh, development, either economically or politically, or even the independent development of your security forces, which can become oriented toward the interests of the great power ally rather than toward your own domestic issues. If you become too, too dependent, uh, then of course you're vulnerable to being left in the lurch. Abandonment is a traditional alliance concern. For countries in Southeast Asia, abandonment is a particularly acute concern because no, no leader in the region believes that, that, that his or her country is really uh, uh, a critical kind of top-order security priority for the United States. It may be for China because it's in China's backyard, but this is a region that has seen great powers come and go, whether it's the Europeans or the Soviets or the Americans. Uh, 
the concern that somehow they would be left in the lurch encourages them to try to keep their options open, uh, particularly those who are, who are allies of the United States who are concerned about a rising China. And then lastly, entrapment. This is also a pervasive concern. Entrapment can be kind of on different levels. The traditional vision of entrapment is two big powers go to war, you're stuck in the middle, you have to choose sides. Naturally, Southeast Asian countries are concerned that if relations between the U.S. and China deteriorate significantly, uh, that if they are positioned uh, in a manner that, that binds them to support one or the other power, then they're going to incur the wrath of the other. And that's not a position any of them wants to be in. Uh, another form of entrapment is not really entrapment, you might say more broadly alienation of third parties, is what happens when you ally with a power that has adversaries in your own domestic constituency. Here an example might be, say, uh, in Indonesia or in Malaysia, the fear that Jema Islamia can paint the Yudhoyono administration as uh, American poodles if, if they were to ally closely with the United States. All of these are reasons for this phenomena of kind of, of shades of gray. So that's, that's the kind of power political uh, manner in which Southeast Asian countries have tried to come to terms with the rising China. Um, but that begs a very big question. How do you get away with this? Uh, trying to play, trying to hedge, trying to find middle ground, limited alignments, relative neutrality, exposes you to the risk that you're not going to be fully protected if, in fact, China does become a menace. In other words, uh, the benefit of, of uh, a rock-ribbed alliance, to go back to this, is if you're in this camp and China becomes a problem, you know you're protected by somebody. Um, if you're somewhere in this middle ground, as I've argued that essentially all of the countries in the region are, you have less protection uh, in the event of a rainy day from some kind of outside power. And so Southeast Asian countries have tried to manage uh, uh, China's rise through both a kind of, uh, what we call, what Sheldon Simon has called it, a, a parallel tracks strategy. Uh, one track is, is you set up these kind of contingent security arrangements. The second track is you engage China robustly through uh, institutional, economic, and even ideational or normative channels in order to socialize it, bring it into the fold, Lilliputians tying down Gulliver in all kinds of rules and norms uh, so that China um, won't be as likely to uh, disadvantage their interests in the neighborhood. There have been all kinds of these institutions formed, and I didn't even include them all. There are track two, in other words, the low official level forums, there's the Asia-Europe forum, there are a variety of others. Uh, but some of the major forums with ASEAN at their core are listed here. And you can get a sense of how uh, Southeast Asian countries, individually and collectively, usually we're talking about the core, the core members, the original five members of, of uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Thailand, who are taking the lead in kind of the uh, expansion of this, this architecture. But increasingly, Vietnam is playing an active role and the others as well. ASEAN has tried to position itself at the core of this expanding institutional framework so that it is kind of the, uh, it is the entity that carries the balance. There are rivalries among various uh, uh, external powers for influence in the region. 
and the best example of that is you had APEC and the ASEAN Regional Forum founded in the uh, late 80s and the early 90s. Those were formed not just for, with security in mind, also for economics, but basically mechanisms for trying to manage this realignment of, of power. Uh, manage it so that the U.S. would stay involved in a constructive way and in a limited way, so that China would be would be socialized and brought into kind of an institutional fold. Well, China looked at these institutions and said, we're not entirely happy with those. First of all, they've got people like uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong there, uh, which is an affront to our, our notion of, of sovereignty. And secondly, there are all of these kind of America's friends there to, uh, to dominate the discussion when we meet in, in APEC or the RF. And so a few years ago, uh, well, toward the end of the 90s, after the Asian financial crisis, uh, China, uh, Japan, and Korea joined with ASEAN to form an ASEAN uh, plus three. ASEAN plus three has focused on economic issues and was able to capitalize in part on frustration with the West response over the Asian financial crisis uh, to, to position itself as, as the new kind of hub of East Asian economic regionalism, at least in the mind of their own participants. But a few years ago, China said, well, we want to expand ASEAN plus three, essentially, into uh, an organization that covers also security and more political concerns. And China proposed, or at least maybe not proposed, I guess Malaysia formally proposed it, but China backed this East Asia Summit. And the East Asia Summit discussion will prove to be a classic example of how ASEAN countries are responding to the rise of China, because in the event a number of countries insisted that India, Australia, and New Zealand become members. China was not happy at all. Um, this was seen by the Chinese as a very uh, blatant attempt to hem in Chinese influence by inviting in other countries who, in, in various respects, had different interests. In the case of Australia and New Zealand, basically bringing the Westerners in. A few countries, Malaysia in particular, supported the Chinese. Most ASEAN countries, and most stridently, uh, the Singaporeans, Indonesians, the Filipinos, uh, were on board with the idea of bringing in these other members. And so here we have an institutional project of trying to, to uh, enmesh China in this institutional framework. But even within that structure, there are the same kinds of what one might call uh, hedging or power political machinations going on. At the same time, of course, uh, Southeast Asian countries are responding to China uh, through building economic bridges. Now, I said this was going to be focused on security, and, and that is how I intend to focus the talk. But it's impossible to ignore either the, the, the tremendous growth in economic linkages between China and the ASEAN states. Uh, it also would be unwise to discount the security relevance of this. Most countries in the region, uh, including Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, those are just three that I've read, in their defense white papers uh, that have been published in the last several years, have talked about economic security as being toward the top of their agenda. Uh, ironically, even after that phase that I diagrammed at the outset of the talk, where you fear this two-pincer Chinese advance or a strategic vacuum, uh, the event that most countries in the region see as having been the greatest security threat since the end of the Cold War was the Asian financial crisis. And so, uh, one way of, of guarding their security at the same time that they try to manage uh, China's rise and socialize it has been to diversify economic linkages. Uh, the FTA with China was the first, 
Japan recently signed one. Uh, Korea has talks. India claims that they're going to be ready to sign this month. Uh, the EU is, you know, has some more serious uh, issues in, in creating its free trade agreement. And the U.S. is working on some bilateral agreements. We've got the Burma problem and some other things that prevent a regional uh, FTA, but have a, a bilateral FTA with Singapore and are working on it with Thailand and Malaysia. The gray box here is the Chiang Mai initiative, which I alluded to earlier, uh, as well as the Asian bond market initiatives. This is kind of where the institutional and the economic dimensions of Southeast Asian engagement with China and other big powers in Asia meet. Uh, Chiang Mai, which I can describe more in Q&A if people are interested, is a system of, of bilateral swaps. It's essentially kind of a, uh, a balance of payments, a crisis support lines set up between the, the countries in Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. And the Asian Bond Markets Initiative and a number of other initiatives are efforts to work through official channels to develop kind of regional financial uh, uh, integration so that you can cross-list products on each other's stock exchanges and the like. The overall picture, though, that I want to leave with here is that engagement with China is robust on the economic sphere. Everybody has seen statistics in The Economist about how trade with China and ASEAN has boomed. In fact, it's up to 200 billion by this year's estimates, which is now well above the U.S. total, so China is now in number one place. But it's within the context of a broad effort to diversify and to kind of keep its options open uh, economically, just as it's doing in the military sphere. Lastly, I call it domesticating the dragon. Uh, these economic and security and institutional linkages all provide Southeast Asian uh, states with much more face time uh, than they previously had with China during the Cold War era. And they've used those opportunities uh, quite actively uh, as a number of scholars, including Evelyn Go and Amitabh Acharya and, and Alice Ba have, have written about. They've used this to try to socialize China to believe that if you behave by our kind of ASEAN rules of the game, you'll be able to expand your influence peacefully. It'll be uh, in everybody's uh, interest. You'll make money. We'll be secure. Soft institutionalism refers to kind of consensus-oriented diplomacy. And one reason why APEC and the ASEAN Regional Forum have had trouble is that they're, they're operating a little bit more on the Western model. And so uh, China has been able to gain ground in the region with Southeast Asia by, by having a greater respect for ASEAN-style diplomacy in which uh, everybody's on board or else the issue doesn't go ahead. The ASEAN way refers to consultation and consensus. Um, uh, Westerners sometimes derive this as kind of talk shop diplomacy. Um, China was, I remember when I was in uh, some track two meetings in uh, early this decade, the Chinese still looked very stiff and uncomfortable in, in multilateral diplomacy in Southeast Asia. Most analysts uh, believe, and I agree, they've become much, much more comfortable in that environment and much better accepted. Now, does that mean that actually the Southeast Asians are being successful, or does it just mean that China is, is playing a good act and, and, and its intentions are unchanged? Is anybody's question? We can discuss that in Q&A. Um, but what one can say is that Southeast Asian countries have tried uh, uh, very assertively to get China to sign up to these kind of norms, and China at least is paying lip service to them, if not always uh, in substance, uh, at least it has it has learned to function better in that environment. Non-interference, um, you know, 
as the Burma cyclone crisis goes on, uh, it's obvious that uh, many Southeast Asian countries are more comfortable with, with uh, a model, or at least not, maybe not many, a number are more comfortable with the traditional norm of non-interference, a strong kind of veil of sovereignty. Uh, uh, China obviously shares that view, and that's helped that's helped establish a kind of common ground diplomatically between Southeast Asian and Chinese governments. The non-use of force, well, that's the big question mark, right? The hope is, if you're a Southeast Asian country, that gradually these kind of progress, that you start by enmeshing China in these kind of institutional arrangements, and that eventually the more kind of substantive as opposed to procedural norms start to take hold. Uh, there's no easy way to test that. Um, the, the closest uh, example that I can think of is to look at the South China Sea disputes. Uh, some authors have said, well, these norms are clearly working because China signed the code of conduct for the South China Sea uh, several years ago in which it agreed to certain broad kind of good behavior. Uh, on the other hand, uh, just last December, there were people in Vietnam demonstrating outside of the Chinese embassy in Hanoi uh, because the Chinese were were restationing troops allegedly to build some kind of civilian structures on one of the disputed islands in the South China Sea. People of a realist pen have looked at that and said, well, this is all a sham. Southeast Asians, don't kid yourself. Uh, China's intentions are, are unchanged. Um, I don't pretend to have an answer for that, but I do pretend to have an answer for the fact that, that Southeast Asian officials believe this is an exercise at least worth trying. They've invested a tremendous amount of staff time, energy, and resources into it. So lastly, uh, how do these fit together? Most of my talk focused on these hedging alignments. You know, we're not strong enough to stand on our own as China gathers strength. Um, we can't effectively police the region ourselves by by congealing as some sort of an ASEAN defense pact. And so we rely at least on part on outside support, most of the time with an orientation toward the U.S., in a few cases with an orientation toward China. And the combination, depending on which is seen as more, as, as more threatening to the country's interests. The second prong is this institutional and economic engagement where you try to uh, change, uh, change from a balance of power to what Fidel Ramos called a balance of mutual benefit. Right? If everybody has a stake in the economic welfare of the region because they want to make money, if everybody believes that the types of norms and processes that ASEAN is following are conducive to regional stability and peace and growth, then we don't have to worry as much about power political strategies because China will be responsible as it moves on to the regional stage more forcefully. And ultimately, what, do that, what does that add up to? What, what I and a number of others uh, refer to as a, as a complex balance of influence. So that we're not just talking about Cold War style kind of, of containment where uh, great power A has, has, has its guns and butter and great power B has its countervailing resources and they find some sort of a, of a uh, uh, competitive uh, saddle point uh, that guarantees regional stability. Well, Southeast Asian countries have never been comfortable with that and they're still not. And they're not comfortable with that because they believe uh, I think almost unanimously, I very rarely have come across someone who, who doesn't have this view in the, in the region, that uh, that process of getting to some sort of a balance of power and that friction that occurs between great power spheres of influence, well, somebody pays. You know, somebody's standing at that intersection. 
And that intersection was the Vietnam War, and that intersection was the Third Indochina War, and that intersection in different parts of the world was the Balkan War, the Middle East. Uh, for Southeast Asia, the comfortable place to be is to have what they call a, a balance of influence where economics, uh, normative and, and ideational uh, influence and military influence are all dispersed among great powers. Each, each individual capital has a different notion of what the optimal balance is to strike across those axes. Some obviously prefer the Philippines more comfortable with a strong US rule, others more comfortable with a stronger Chinese rule. Um, but the, the sum of their, of their strategies has been to precisely avoid a situation in which they have to either balance or bandwagon uh, assertively with the PRC. is a magisterial tour of the horizon, uh, and I'm sure that many of you have comments or questions you'd like to. Yes. Please identify yourself. Well, I'm Russ Stanley, visiting scholar. Thank you for a very engaging presentation. Um, there's a widespread perception of declining U.S. influence in the region, both because of the economics, the China surpassing the U.S. major trade partners for ASEAN, Japan, and Korea, but also because the U.S. is seen as preoccupied, not showing up for only one of the last three ARS. My question is, how big a variable is the perception of U.S. engagement and U.S. policy in the calculations of the ASEANs as, the, as, as they make this complex balancing decisions? Uh, that's an excellent question. I'll, I'll go to the little map of the grays here. The, I think where it comes into my, my analytic model is it gets to this question of, of the risks of depending on the United States, essentially the abandonment concern, right? Uh, countries in the region feeling that the United States can't be counted on if if push comes to shove because we're preoccupied by Iraq and Afghanistan and the rest of it. Um, in the econo I'll start with the economic, which is a little easier, I think, and then move to the security. In the economic area, or in the kind of, uh, more broadly than economic, in the non-military area, I think that there is a frustration, certainly, with the fact that the U.S. is preoccupied. There's a significant amount of instrumental motive that infuses those comments by Southeast Asian leaders, right? If you're, if you're a country in a region that's very distant from the United States, uh, you've got to compete for uh, attention. And, and there certainly is no doubt that, uh, that when leaders uh, in the region complain often stridently about the U.S.'s disengagement, uh, that in part it's because they want the U.S. to be to be a part of the region. I mean, in a sense, what I'm saying is that if, if the countries in Southeast Asia had really kind of given up, uh, then they wouldn't hear those kinds of, of complaints. They want the United States. I don't say. I keep saying they. Obviously, I'm simplifying. But the key, the key, U.S.-friendly countries in the region very much want uh, uh, the U.S. to participate in these forums. And partly they want to do that, uh, partly they want that because they don't want to be in a situation where they have to turn toward an unwanted degree of reliance on China, on Chinese leadership. And I don't yet see, going to this kind of graph here, I don't yet see that the perception of U.S. disengagement has fundamentally altered the kind of preferences or strategies of countries in this institutional economic sphere because this EAS example showed 
that they're looking for other options. Okay, maybe the U.S. isn't uh, uh, the only counterbalancing actor in these spheres. Uh, and so when we talk about trade, we can think about the EU and India and Japan and Korea. Diversification in those areas is the key, not necessarily kind of China versus the U.S. And so while there is a frustration about the U.S. not attending APEC, uh, two years out of three at the, at the most senior level. I'm sorry, uh, ASEAN Regional Summit, ASEAN Regional Forum. Uh, I don't think it has precipitously changed the strategies in those areas. In the security area, I would say that the perception that the U.S. is distracted is not yet uh, as significant an issue as it will become. And the reason it's not yet is that even with a very modest uh, even with a very modest number of white or light gray states out here, the U.S. naval and air superiority is still so great uh, over any other rival in the region um, that a very modest uh, amount of kind of basing facilities and joint arrangements is sufficient to, to in the maritime region, to contribute to this kind of, of soft primacy. Now, on the mainland region, uh, I, I think, again, the perception that the U.S. is pulling back in recent years or is preoccupied is not terribly relevant to their policy-making uh, decisions because I think these countries wrote off long ago that they can't count on the U.S. introducing ground troops onto, onto Southeast Asia. And so for them, it's more of a question of the U.S. staying broadly engaged in the region, which I think you know, the U.S. remains. And, and then those kind of institutional economic dynamics. I hope that's a sufficient answer to the question. Yeah, maybe I could just chip in here. <clears throat> um, if, we, if we look at this sort of complex dynamics as a kind of moving field, right, and we project into the future, which is always tricky, um, one can imagine that change could originate from a number of sources. Crudely, it could be external or internal. Now, when I say external, you know, the extent of polarization between China and the U.S. obviously influences the hedging, balancing, or bandwagoning strategies that we would be adopted locally, right? I mean, the notion of bandwagoning, I think it's important to introduce a kind of viscosity of entrance. That is to say, you have to be credentialed if we have a League of Democracies, as John McCain would project. I'm not saying he will be President of the United States nor that he would live up to campaign promises, but to the extent that democracy becomes a basis for alignment in the eyes of the United States, then the door to bandwagoning is perhaps partially shut. And one can imagine that that would trigger a certain polarizing situation inside, inside Southeast Asia. Obviously, one could sketch out alternative choices that the Chinese might make as well. But on the subject of democracy in particular, Foreign policies in Southeast Asia have traditionally been relatively sequestered from domestic developments, and this is partly a function of the fact that authoritarian regimes have been common in the region, and even at the moment, the only one that Freedom House credits as being democratic is the Indonesian one, the other nine less so. But insofar as internal developments that might perhaps move in that direction could constrain the foreign policies of the respective countries in Southeast Asia, then you have a kind of indigenous uh, shifting taking place, the alters, in other words, bandwagoning or balancing or hedging is not simply a response to a changing external situation, but also may reflect domestic constituencies that have more or less influence. So 
without asking you to kind of predict the future, although I am, <laughs> uh, how, how would you sort of assess those different sources of, of, of change? Well, certainly if you look at this map, uh, it indicates that, that <coughs> domestic politics and ideology are, are not irrelevant even today. Uh, because the countries that are the closest to China, the ones that are kind of in, in this gray area but are kind of tilting in the direction of the PRC, are in fact the ones that, that to some degree you, you ideologically respect. And, and those that are a little bit uh, uh, more uh, genuinely democratic or that have more capitalist uh, uh, economic systems uh, historically, those are oriented more toward the U.S. So I would say that, that that it never has been the case that domestic politics don't matter. And then now in the future, if the U.S. decides that we are going to go after, uh, we're going to put in place a very robust pro-democracy regime in Southeast Asia or in Asia more broadly, how will that affect alignment decisions? Well, historically, uh, the unfortunate fact is that when you look at what, what is American identity in this region, well, American identity is a couple of different things. It's, it's partly democracy and human rights. It's partly capitalism and free trade and open seas, etc. And it's partly uh, military power. Numbers two and three have always been, uh, Southeast Asian partners of the U.S. have always been happy to plug into, right? It's number one that's been the problem uh, more often than not. The Singaporeans are arguably our best ally in the region. I don't mean they're the closest. The Philippines are the closest in historical terms and in terms of the troops on the ground. But the Singaporeans occupy this critical position. Uh, uh, they are themselves militarily powerful. They have a very similar medium-term view on regional stability. Uh, but when we've had tips with them, it's been for these kinds of reasons, right? It's been because uh, uh, somebody uh, William Sapphire wrote an article in the New York Times or, or Wall Street Journal criticizing uh, Lee Kuan Yew uh, for anti-democratic practices. Uh, with the Indonesians, uh, we're in a remarkable situation where we may not have to pay in our relationships with Indonesia for a more robust pro-democracy uh, agenda in Southeast Asia. And that's a wonderful uh, circumstance uh, uh, in and of itself. That alone is a huge change in the region. In the Philippines, probably we're okay as well. In Thailand, uh, if, if the U.S. pushes more aggressively for democracy, it's a little unclear. I mean, we gave them just a little tap on the wrist for that military coup in 2006. I was in Washington at the time and frankly was shocked at how few voices uh, in the government thought that, that the U.S. should get tough uh, on, on the ties for, for the military coup. Uh, but in fact, our relationship with Thailand has been, uh, we suspended ties in 1991 and 1992 with Thailand because of the repression of the uh, demonstrations in Bangkok. Uh, but I'm not, the bottom line is I'm not sure that, that a pro-democracy uh, agenda, a robust one, would hurt us with the ties. I think where it would hurt us would be uh, it would certainly continue to rule out any possibility of our getting closer with Myanmar as it probably should. With Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, I think that we, unless those countries themselves internally develop more democratic structures and come kind of rally to our side of the ideational table, uh, that the U.S. pushing hard on that issue uh, will raise rather than reduce suspicions about our intentions. Um, 
Brunei is not, a, not really a significant factor. Malaysia, ironically, although they're probably more democratic than, than, than average across, uh, across the developing world, or at least across the uh, developing Asia, uh, in some respects, has also been very critical of us, especially when human rights starts to come into the question, uh, equation alongside democracy. And so I imagine that we don't gain or lose very much with, with Malaysia. Um, I don't think we gain very much with that we don't uh, already have with the Philippines. I suppose the big question mark is Indonesia. I'm just kind of backing into an answer. Yeah, I mean, I happen to have been in Indonesia last week, and um, the demonstrations on the on the fuel price desubsidization included a distinctly uh, anti-American tone, primarily expressed in terms of the president being a lackey of the United States, and the rise of a kind of Chavez sort of nationalism uh, that may be unique to Indonesia, but insofar as there are going to be economic constraints, and we talk about food crisis, the U.S. poised for recession, um, it may not be sort of democracy on the rise in Southeast Asia, but rather a kind of nastier form of nationalism. Okay, any other comments or questions? Yes, please. A really good presentation, John. But as you're as you're talking about hedging within uh, military security uh, concerns, I kept thinking: isn't the real hedging going on? Or I'd be interested in your perspective on this. Isn't there a real hedging going on between military security and economic engagement? And I was thinking of Vietnam. It might tilt more to China's, as you suggest, on military security. But it's full out on, on economic relations with uh, with the U.S. Likewise. Uh, Singapore is full out on economic relations with China, but very closely aligned with us in, in uh, uh, military security. So is, is that where the real hedging is going? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the, most people who use the term hedging in the literature use it to describe what you just did, which is to say that you hedge by having, uh, you see a, a, a potential rival. Uh, in this case, let's imagine you're Singapore and you're watching China grow. And so the hedge constitutes a kind of countervailing security posture coupled with a robust economic engagement. So essentially, what, what I've got here is two separate phases. Uh, a, a lot of people say that alignment plus engagement, or countervailing alignment plus engagement equals hedging. The reason why I use the term hedging to refer only to uh, the alignment side of it is that it's an analytic thing. I should have explained it in my presentation. If hedging constitutes countervailing alignment plus uh, economic engagement, that's not necessarily, there's nothing wrong with that definition, but for a study of alignment politics, which is what, which is what my manuscript is about, uh, hedging then doesn't mean much in an alignment context because you could have Japan is quote unquote hedging, as, as Dick Samuels uh, said when he was here six months ago, because they've got a, a strong alliance with the US and they're also trading with China. Um, if you're going to, if, if I'm going to distinguish hedging as a type of alignment strategy, like I have on this arrow, I need to, I need to separate it out from, from the, uh, the question of, of economics and security. Does that make sense? Uh, now, having said that, now the, the, the real question that you ask is uh, the important part of the question is, well, is, is this, is is this combination really the essence of their of their management of risk and their preservation of future options and I think certainly yes okay uh, and that's why I say that this 
this is uh, here I've tried to isolate a security variable and then include everything else. But their composite strategy, which is a complex balance of influence, uh, uh, certainly has, I mean, both of these aspects are critical. One doesn't exist without the other. Um, they wouldn't feel comfortable engaging to the same extent in these channels if they didn't feel, when I say they, I mean many of the states of the region, if they didn't feel that they had a kind of security backup. And, and they probably wouldn't feel comfortable uh, engaging in such limited security relations if they weren't developing some degree of trust through all of the uh, engagement practices. So, so I, I think your characterization is different. Uh, John, to what extent, if any, do you think that the intra-ASEAN conflicts and tensions dynamics affect the different assessments of the hygiene strategies? Uh, I think that what I think that what, where that comes in is, is in a couple of ways. First is, as I said in the talk, it, it precludes or at least reduces the likelihood of, of a real block forming among these ten triangles. And so it increases their perception of need for somebody outside as, as a security provider. Uh, that's one key, right? And uh, secondly, I think what it does is that it, I've been talking about China because I wanted to, to focus the discussion, but the security threats of greatest concern to many of the countries in this region are not now and not in the near future emanating from China. They're emanating from their neighbors or from inside their own borders. And so, you know, I've been talking about Singapore for simplicity as coming closer to the U.S. in part to manage the rise of China. But, but a, a more powerful historical and present-day explanation is a concern about what's going on in Malaysia and in Indonesia. And so, uh, in both of those senses, uh, regional <coughs> discord adds to the weight on the side of the scale to say that you should seek out a, uh, an external partner. Now, on the other hand, on the other side of the scale, the fact that there is regional discord also simultaneously places some limits on a willingness to be seen or to be identified with an external patron. And again, Singapore is the, the seminal case in point. The Singaporeans have never wanted to be seen either as an American lackey or as a Chinese ethnic Chinese fifth column in the region. They, have, they face serious constraints based on tensions with their two much larger neighbors with being uh, perceived as, as too closely allied to, to either of the two rival great powers that we're talking about. Uh, and to a lesser extent, the same can be said for a variety of countries in this region. As I mentioned when talking about Cambodia and Laos, their concern has not just been if we get closer to China, are we too dependent, but they're also concerned because historically, Thailand and Vietnam have had more to do with their security and their welfare than, than more distant China or U.S. And so, uh, where does this shake out? I, I, I'm not sure I can say across all 10 case studies that it always comes out one way or the other, stronger or weaker alignments, but I think it's fair to say that regional discord has the, those two major effects. It incentivizes finding somebody outside the region to be a friend in a time of need, and at the same time it adds to an incentive to keep those, up, to keep those alignments very limited because you don't want to upset delicate relations with your neighbors. John, I, I, I really like this presentation a lot. I like the soup of it. Uh, but uh, one element that you didn't talk about, and I was looking at the shades of gray, is the 
the threat perception of China amongst uh, these countries. If you were to do a kind of a shades of gray map on the basis of threat perception, how would you, in other words, to what degree do they actively see China as a, uh, you know, a potential hegemonic uh, power that threatens their, uh, uh, their independence or security? What, what would that map look like there? Naturally, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a tough one to get good information on because of the instrumental motives that people have when they speak. I mean, Mahathir had this famous quote, why should we identify China as an enemy? Because if we identify them as an enemy, they'll become our enemy. Uh, based just on my conversations with people in the region, uh, there is little doubt that Vietnam, Vietnamese officials, kind of rank and file officials, are, are the most straightforward and candid about saying China is a threat. It always has been and it always will be. We're not going to try to poke it with a stick, but quietly, you know, when people are out of earshot, they are a real threat. And they're concerned in particular about the South China Sea, but of course they also have a legacy of that border war. Um, in, in Cambodia, uh, I, I, would, I would say it's a, a much lesser uh, threat perception. There's the perception among people on the street that China and, and the Cambodia People's Party are in bed and having all these sweetheart deals to raid the, the forests and the, and the mines and the, and the oil installations, um, but it's not a kind of security threat of China. Uh, I confess I don't have a lot of insight into, into Lao perceptions of China, although historically I can say that the, the Lao, at least spoken policies, have, have tended to follow in the line of the Vietnamese. In the case of Cambodia, is there no legacy from the Chinese support for the Khmer Rouge? Surprisingly, none. None that I've detected, right? I mean, if, if, if I ask the people who are my colleagues who work on the Khmer Rouge problem, um, they will express some kind of a, a distant frustration, but not necessarily more or less so than the frustration with the U.S. for the bombardment or, or with the French for, for uh, uh, the colonial period. I've been surprised at that myself. Um, and so there's, there, is, there is resentment uh, of, of China for having supported the Khmer Rouge, but there is not a feeling that China on that basis is perceived as a current or an imminent future threat. Uh, in, in, in Thailand, when I've spoken to people, there was very little sense that China posed a direct threat to, to Thai strategic interests in the sense of China being an, an adversary to Thailand. The Thais clearly, uh, whom I've spoken to, have sided, have fallen into the camp of saying China is kind of our strategic friend. Uh, but uh, there's a considerable concern uh, with China's relationship with Myanmar and with that kind of two pincer advance. So I would say that Thailand probably, it's not Vietnam, but, but there's a little bit more of a concern than I've, than I've sensed in Cambodia. Uh, and in Myanmar, uh, the the relationship is obviously quite cozy on a, on a security level uh, to the extent that I've had, that I've uh, heard people raise concerns about China. It's usually been the, the, the fear of the friend who becomes a big brother and then bosses you around. But there doesn't seem to be a feeling. If anything, the feeling in, in Myanmar toward China, the concern is more like the concern of uh, uh, South Texas to Mexico than it is to you know, to uh, you know, U.S. and the Soviet Union. I mean, it's a concern that there's so much immigration and so much economic activity that they feel that in certain parts of the country that they're losing control over it. Uh, it's in this region where the where the threat perceptions, I think, are more consistent, uh, uh, are more consistently 
express, at least in these meetings. Now, the Philippines clearly is kind of, I would say they're probably second to Vietnam, right? And they've been very explicit about saying that, that, that China uh, in the South China Sea is, is, a, is a real threat. The mischief reef crisis in 1995, the, the, uh, the shoals in 1999, the, the claims of creeping assertiveness, they're high on the list. Uh, Brunei doesn't say very much about it, but they, of course, are highly dependent on that area right here in the South China Sea where they get their, their oil and gas and on the free shipping lanes. I think for Brunei, it's, it's more of a general concern <coughs> that China would become, uh, that somehow Sino-American rivalry would destabilize this whole region, not a sense that China is going to come and, 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 uh, and do anything against that regime in particular. Indonesia, maybe third after Vietnam and the Philippines as far as a long-term threat perception, uh, but for different reasons. Partly it's the legacy of the ethnic tensions in Jakarta and the feeling that China can expand its influence through this uh, uh, ethnic community. And then secondly, Indonesia, even more than Vietnam, has, I mean, you know, Don is, is writing on this now, that the historical sense that Indonesia occupies a special pride of place in the region because of its size and, and other nationalist characteristics, etc. China represents a kind of a threat to what Indonesia might see as a natural kind of leadership in the region. Singaporeans, uh, again, I don't think that they see China as any kind of a direct military threat, uh, but, but they, more than anybody else, is, are, are dependent on general regional stability for their extraordinary wealth and for their commerce, etc. And so the feeling that somehow China could start misbehaving and stir up trouble, whether it's in the South China Sea or over here in the East Indian Ocean, is, is a big concern to a country that, that whose lifeblood is being able to go freely on these trade routes. And Malaysia, it's complicated. I mean, Malaysia is the toughest case in some ways because they have been publicly identified as a real friend of China. They stuck up for them in the East Asia Summit thing. They've been at a lot of meetings. They sit next to the Chinese and they vote with the Chinese at these multilateral forums, etc. Um, and yet they've got their own you know, history of ethnic rivalries and they've got their own exclusive economic zone that generates a tremendous amount of their uh, of their uh, exports. And so I guess I'd put Malaysia uh, kind of in the middle. I think you can answer. Maybe just, uh, okay, these last two, because we're running late, please. Uh, I really appreciate this very sophisticated analysis of yours. Um, I, it seems to me that nation states is your negative analysis. And, and you're making an assumption that you have the, all of these powers, all of these uh, responses to security issues and things like that. Coming from Vietnam originally, I can see, I, I, I wonder if you look at not just policy from top down, if you look at the uh, analysis at the personal level, um, in particular in the case of Vietnam, I can see that yes, the relation between Vietnam and China has always been difficult, very, very difficult. Vietnam is a big elephant, as we say, I mean, China is a big elephant, as we say, and Vietnam is like a, a peanut next to, to China. So it has always been very difficult, not to mention a thousand years of, you know, under Chinese rule. Yes, the Vietnamese government has been uh, making compromises, I would say, to, to try to appease uh, Chinese because a lot of trade going on between the two countries. But if you look at the um, more of a micro level, if you look at uh, uh, people's responses, there have been a lot of protests. Um, Students protest, the young people's protest against governments, Vietnamese government's policies in ceding certain regions up in the northern border and the Spratly Islands. Of course, those protests have been quickly suppressed 
by the government. The most recent one is the the, the torch, you know, uh, um, carried through Vietnam. Right. There were a lot of protests, but quickly suppressed by the government. There's a sense of national sovereignty by the Vietnamese people. Very interesting, very interestingly, young folks, not old folks, young folks. So my question is, uh, and not to mention uh, all the kind of factors, and ethnic Chinese coming back to Vietnam to invest in Vietnam tremendously. So if you look at the micro-personal level, bring the human face into your analysis, to what extent does that mitigate your macro, very specific level of analysis? I mean, how, to what extent does that mitigate your analysis? May I piggyback on that question? Because it's basically similar. Um, your analysis, which I really appreciate, I learned a lot, it's a, it's a very kind of elegant, static model. And, and, and I want to know, just very simply, what do you foresee as the potential spanner in the works that make it so that ASEAN, or some of the countries within ASEAN, can't continue this balance of influence strategy? You say that the conduct of parties in the South China Sea it's not going to be tested. So you remove security threats from your equation. So in what issues or issue areas will there really be problems that, that you foresee? Will it be, you know, it doesn't seem to be in economics overall because uh, there's economic interdependence, but will it be contests for DFI, contests over energy resources? Will it be issues of human security and migration and the fact if Chinese factories are in, in, in Vietnam and workers are mistreated? What really would be some of the real key um, flies in the ointment spanner in the works sure. that you foresee? Uh, on the question of, of how opinion on the street affects foreign policies more broadly, uh, I mean, I don't want to go on too long about this, but I mean, I've got, you know, uh, in each country there's obviously part of this, part of this risk of, of, of any kind of a security policy is that you get too far from your own people. And even if you're not a democracy, uh, uh, you still have to worry about public opinion. And so that is a constraint. In this kind of a model, uh, uh, this kind of a scheme of how you uh, respond to a rising power, it constrains you as a government. It doesn't necessarily dictate how you will behave. Clearly, if it were up to the Indonesians, as Don alluded to earlier, and you just had a plebiscite, uh, uh, there would be a heck of a lot of people, maybe a large majority, who would say, we don't like the idea of US ships stopping around here and working with us with counterterrorism. Now clearly, it's the elite and not the public that is driving the, the, the overall kind of direction of the policy, but they are heavily constrained by the voices on the street. They can, Indonesia has not uh, had a US base, and it probably never will, unless there is a direct attack by some unforeseen, almost unforeseen goal. Uh, 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 major external uh, adversary, because in large part of that domestic constraint, I'm sure that they wouldn't. I'm sure there are people in the Indonesian government who wouldn't mind having the huge base revenue like poured out of Subic Bay, but public reaction would be very, very negative and very strong. Uh, and and in Singapore, for that reason, is an interesting case study because in Singapore, although there certainly is a public and it has a voice, because of the small size and because of the relative. Uh, you know, the relative uh, uh, kind of top-heavy uh, uh, system of policy making in, in Singapore, uh, it, it might be a case where the government is a little bit less constrained by public opinion. Now in the Philippines, you have a, a government that despite having uh, a population that has friendlier than average views toward the U.S., 
Still, it was nationalist sentiments in the Congress, and it was some protests in the street. Those were contributors to the decision to close the bases and to deny the status of forces agreement for a while, and then eventually to uh, allow back the U.S. troops after the Abu Sayyaf started kicking up in the early post-9/11 period. Uh, so the public, the public is a is a constraint. Uh, in, in policy making, but usually in Southeast Asia, I would argue not the driver uh, as much as it is in some other parts of the world. The question about this being, uh, is it dynamic? Um, uh, it looks very static in the presentation because I've got little triangles up there and they just look solid, right? <laughs> um, but, but actually the whole point of a hedging strategy is supposed to be dynamism, right? My argument would be that ban balancing and bandwagoning, the reason you don't do that is because they're not static. Because once you've got some really big country that has 10,000 troops on your soil, guess what? You're not easily getting out. And, and, and so as a result, you hedge precisely because you want to be able to maneuver. And you don't want to have to maneuver radically. You want to be able to maneuver within the interstices of the great power so that you can kind of of, of adjust this balance of influence. What are the type of things that could that could be flies in the ointment, or that could cause this map to all the colors to change, like like they did at the end of the Cold War? Well, it could be a variety of things. I mean, Taiwan declares independence. Well, then there's going to be some pressure on these countries about which side you're on. That would be a, a classic uh, example. Um, there could be. For, for reasons that don't appear now to make sense, but could if the price of oil keeps going up or if economies tank, uh, some country may decide to take a bid in the South China Sea. I didn't mean to imply that that couldn't be a starter for, for a conflict. That's, that's exactly the type of place where these things break out. And it's not that I think that, that it's, it's uh, imminent that, that one or the other of these, these powers is going to uh, launch some kind of a preemptive or preventive war, it's that when tensions <laughs> erupt, either because there's a stock market crash and refugees fl uh, flee somewhere, or because there's a regime overthrow in Burma, or because of some other contingency that we can't foresee, uh, then the correlation of forces, military, ideational, ideological, economic shift, and countries have to readjust. And so this is not meant at all to be a static model. It's meant to be one in which, in which, in which countries, countries go gray because then they can take a step in one direction or the other as these conditions are. Mm -hmm. But still primarily it take something dramatic. You're saying like U.S. decision to ramp up democracy promotion programs in the region, Taiwanese declaration of independence, or a real real dramatic change in the economic environment. I think it has to be a, a change that on the regional level is a change you can fairly call uh, uh, systemic uh, for, for, for this map to totally change. Now, mm -hmm. for one country, now the Singaporeans or the Bruneians, Brunei, let's say, is a good example. If somebody decides that they want to get reelected by saying that this is really Malay oil and not Bruneian oil or something, then maybe that changes the map for Brunei, but not for anybody else. So if we're talking about changing the entire kind of landscape of these, uh, these security postures, I do think it would have to be something relatively insignificant. Otherwise, what you'll get is just one little bit lower gray, one bit higher, you know, white, et cetera, and it'll change very gradually over time. Thank you. Thank you, John, for a very stimulating presentation. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.